are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Would you please hear the words of the Lord? Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you in the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may be seated except for our children, uh, ages three to eight, pre-K to third grade. You can be dismissed. Um, and we hope you guys have a wonderful time with uh, our dear sister, Nicole. Um, for the rest of us, um, again, welcome this morning in 2016, uh, Scientific American magazine wrote an article detailing a groundbreaking study that they conducted, or that was conducted, by uh, one um, scholar by the name of Dr. Kathleen Voss. And she, along with all of her colleagues, made some unbelievable discoveries about the relationship of money to humanity. She discovered that money makes us more selfish, less helpful, and less generous towards others. However, that's only half of the discovery that she actually made. During the study, they also discovered that simply touching money has the power to alter our behavior. In one of her experiments that they conducted, they, they instructed uh, pedestrians to drop bus passes on purpose in front of two different types of people. The first person, or the first type of person, was those who had just made a withdrawal from the ATM along the way. And then the second person was those who were just simply walking by the pedestrian who was dropping the bus pass. And what they found was that the people who had just gotten their money out of the ATM were less likely to bring to the uh, pedestrian's attention that they dropped their bus pass and then the people that were walking by were more likely. In other words, the people that had just withdrew money were less helpful. You say, well, maybe that's just some slight chance. I'm sure that could be any, re any number of reasons. But they did a number of other tests. One test they actually extended to small children between the ages of three and six, kind of like the kids that just left this room. And the testers clearly explained to the children that they needed to keep the classroom where, uh, where they were conducting the test clean by putting away the items and pushing the chairs back under the table when they were finished. And after laying out this instruction, then they gave the children a box of money, U.S. denominations, and they let them handle the coins and let them handle the bills for as long as they wanted to while secretly timing how long they choose, chose to do so. 
And when the children finished handling the money, they went into another room where they were given two more chances to help out. In the first opportunity, they asked the children, did they want to reset the room and reset the materials to prepare for the next child that may be following them in the test? Or do they want to go out and play? And then the second opportunity, they gave the children up, uh, up to three toys as a token of appreciation for their participation. But after giving the toys to the children, they asked them if they wanted to give any of their toys to another school, uh, to another schoolmate to brighten their day. Here's what they learned. The children who played longer with the money were more selfish, less helpful, and less generous. They were poorer at keeping the room clean and less willing to help gather materials for the next child. They also took more rewards for themselves and were less likely to give away their toys. They changed the variables in a number of different ways to try to see if they could produce different outcomes, but each time they came away with the same findings, that the money altered their behavior. One positive was that their focus improved in their work because they had motivation. But way more often than not, the ability to connect and unify with others was weakened. So what's the point? The point is, is that over and over again, this science experiment was proving a biblical truth. And that is this. The more we are concerned about money, the less we are often concerned about others. The love of money and the love of possessions has an inversely proportional effect on unity and harmony. In other words, when we are overly concerned about our wealth, our concern for others is more often than not diminished. And this morning, as we continue our series through some of the parables that Jesus used to teach spiritual truths, our focus this morning is on a parable that Jesus uses to provide some reasons for why this relationship between money and humanity operates the way that it does. Let's start with the conversation that prompts this parable. There's an encounter over money to start this, to start this parable. We see in verse 12 that, or verse 13, chapter 12, there's someone in the crowd that says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So we start with money and family ties. This dispute over money is what leads Jesus to tell us the parable that he does about money. Now, this, this brother appears to have enough information on Jesus to know that he is wise enough to settle this dispute and seems to believe that he himself has enough merit and enough power in his persuasion to convince Jesus to settle this dispute in his favor. However, this dispute also does a great job of capturing our own culture's increasing trend of putting money over everything, including family. In 2019, the New York Times, they published an article highlighting a troubling increase in families suing one another over inheritances and estates. 
And this quote captured me in this, in this article. He said, this lawyer, he said, most people, or rather, or rather the, 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 the editor, not the editor, but the author of the article said, most people would want to avoid such costly and destructive courtroom battles, but they are increasingly common. In fact, legal action among family members has become a booming business for lawyers who specialize in estate litigation. Quote, if I was mentoring a young lawyer, I direct him to trust the estate to, to the trust in a state litigation practice, said Jeffrey P. Guida, the head of tax, tax and estate planning at Weinstock Mannion, a law firm in Los Angeles. And then he closes with this, the lawyer. We can't hire enough attorneys. We can't hire enough attorneys to sue families over estates. How often can, can we even think back to our own lives, and how often have we heard of and seen the closest of families be ripped apart over issues surrounding money? When money is involved, we'll fight over our loved one's dead body. Literally, we will fight over our loved one's dead body. In fact, we'll show up to argue over how to spend a dead loved one's money quicker than we'll actually show up to offer that loved one comfort in their final hours or offer condolences and comfort to the grieving after those final hours have passed. However, the decision to bring this grievance to Jesus is not too surprising. Teachers and were often called upon, teachers and rabbis were often called upon to give advice concerning legal disputes. And given all the buzz around Jesus, I can't think of a teacher people would probably want to hear more, of, more from than him, right? However, Jesus, Jesus gives a response that's a little bit off the beaten path for the brother. Verse 14, he says, man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you. Now, the term man isn't necessarily a rude term, but it's a it's a term that's unfamiliar in a sense. It's saying, listen, you don't know me that well. Why do you want me to speak on these matters? At least that's how one scholar has captured it in this text. Jesus doesn't concern himself with this issue of arbitration. But why? Because it appears that Jesus' desire isn't to settle the dispute of these two brothers on the surface, but to unveil the motivations of the heart that is driving this conflict. Jesus is always concerned about getting to the heart. And so Jesus obviously has the ability to judge the legal disputes and judge the legal matters, but where he stands apart is his ability to clearly look into the motivations driving all of the disputes and the grievances. So Jesus quickly moves this discussion from a legal dispute, a technical argument, an interpersonal dispute, to a spiritual, moral, inner heart confrontation. And it moves from money and family to money and life very quickly. Verse 15, he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Jesus moves from the surface struggle between brothers to the internal struggles of the brother's heart. And in so doing, he is getting to the most important issue here. Because for Jesus, uncovering the danger of greed lurking underneath this dispute is more critical than finding a resolution on the inheritance. Pay attention to Jesus' words in verse 15. All covetousness. This highlights the fact that greed has many, many faces. Greed can show up in the heart of the poor. It can show up in the heart of the working class. It can show up in the heart of the middle class. And yes, most certainly, it can show up in the hearts of the rich. It shows up in Hollywood. It shows up in, or, or rather, on Capitol Hill. And yes, most certainly, it shows up in the Bible Belt. It shows up in consumer cravings for the next mobile phone or trendy gear, or it shows up in the CEO's unnecessary layoffs of the lowest paid staff members while holding on to insane bonuses for the top executives who are already excessively wealthy. It shows up in the hood dealers' sale of, 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 of drugs to their community. And it shows up in the wealthy cartels who import those drugs into the hands of those low-level hood dealers. And it shows up in the corrupt officials who take money to look the other way. It shows up in churches from the members clutching every dollar to use for their own enjoyment. And it shows up in the preachers reaching for every dollar from the flock to use as tools for their own ambition and own pleasure. Jesus has in mind all of this greed. One pastor captures it this way. He says, think of how many scams are effective because people are greedy. He continues and he says, if we watch against greed, we can protect ourselves from so many things, from get-rich-quick schemes, from prosperity gospel, from pyramid, uh, 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 I'm sorry, pyramid schemes and coveting. The only reason prosperity preachers and internet scam artists and everyday hustlers can run their game is because so many people are greedy and think life is defined by what they have. That last part is important. For all of this greed, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard. One translation says, beware. It's like it's something lurking around you. Basically, look out for greed like a security guard protecting property that they're assigned to. Or look out for greed like a watchman protecting his community from invasion. These words indicate that we must be diligent and persistent and relentless in our attention to the heart's posture to lean away from contentment and towards greediness. Relentless, persistent attention must be given to the heart and its propensity to lean away from contentment to greediness. Why? 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 Why do we have to put so much energy into this effort? Well, Jesus tells us because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice that Jesus takes this dispute that starts as a family matter and makes it a life matter. And what he is saying about money, he is saying about life. And what is he saying? 
He's saying true life cannot be found in our accumulation of stuff. Commenting on this passage, one theologian makes this very helpful observation. He says the Greek language uses three words for life that Luke could have used. One is bios, or bios, which referred to quantitative life. And from bios, bios, whichever, however the Greek pronounces that, I got to go back and look and brush up on that word. But, how, but, but, but he's talking about the quantitative life, how long one lived and how many goods one acquired. But then there's a different word for life in the Greek, and it's psyche, which referred to the qualitative life. In other words, the values and the relationships that constitutes personhood. But then there's one more word that they can use for life, and it is zoe life. It's bios, psyche, zoe, which refer to the quintessential life, zoe does. This is the life that God describes as God kind of life, an abundant kind of life that is offered to us through the gospels. Zoe is transcendent life. It cannot be reduced to and measured by or satisfied by stuff. We do not earn or merit Zoe life, but we receive Zoe life freely and undeservedly from God through the person of Jesus Christ. And then he continues and he says, Zoe is relational rather than material. It is eternal rather than temporal. It is, it is, it is long-lasting rather than fading. Zoe produces contentment and peace and joy. And then the theologian ends his comments on Zoe with this insight. He says, Jesus is saying, be on your guard against trying to achieve and satisfy Zoe life with things. You tracking with that? Greed is what happens when we seek to satisfy the craving for Zoe life, divine life, Deep and intimate relational life, eternal life, contentment-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled life with stuff. That's what produces greed. But also notice for Jesus, it appears that what you think about money is basically a statement on what you think about life. What does your current use of money your current collection of things and stuff, your current pursuit of things and stuff, your current willingness or unwillingness to give and share of what you have. What does all of these things say currently about what you think about life and what life truly is? So to all of this, Jesus says, guard your heart relentlessly, diligently against greed because Zoe life cannot be found in the abundance of stuff. And to further highlight this point, he shares a parable. We probably took more time in, the, in, in setting it up than we will in the parable, but let's continue on in discussing the parable. Jesus' parable starts in the most perfect way for those of us who have been raised and formed in the American soils of paper chasing, a.k.a. relentlessly going after money and going after wealth. 
It starts in the perfect way for those of us who have been grown and raised and reared in these soils. Verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Is there anything sweeter for the American ears? For the hyper-consumerist, hyper-materialist, hyper-capitalist heart than this. A man who is already wealthy continues to grow wealthier. His wealth is now reaching compounding levels. He is amassing wealth at a pace that he can no longer keep up with. Wealth is being stacked on top of wealth. And for too many people... We could stop the story here and call it success. Already this man's story and this man's life is to be admired by us and, and envied by us. We are already right, ready to change places with this man. A man who has already been wealthy is wealthier. For the American heart, he is a man that is to be aspired and yet for Jesus, this man's story is just getting started. For Jesus, this rich man is a man. As a matter of fact, we see over and over again in the scriptures the appearance of a rich man being treated with subtlety. Super low key is not something that Jesus takes a whole lot of. Oh, my goodness, he has so much money. Most of the time Jesus interacts with him interacts with them in the same way that he interacts with anybody else. They are no more important in the eyes of the Lord than anyone else to Jesus. In fact, we have, we have here in Luke 16 a story about a poor man and a rich man. The poor man goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell. But what's interesting about that story, and we'll come around to that story in a few weeks, what's really interesting about that story is that the poor man is given a name while the rich man remains anonymous in the story. The poor man was named Lazarus. You've heard of him before if you've read through Scripture, but you never hear about the rich man's name. And Jesus is making a clear point in that. So for Jesus, his increasing wealth is not the climax of the story. It's just a needed detail in a more cautionary tale. As a matter of fact, there is a small hint in the first sentence of this story that should give us pause as we read it. Verse 16, he says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. The land produced plentifully. The action of production is not the man's to own. Production happens outside of this man. There's another source at work to bring about the fruitfulness of his wealth. Of course, the wise people in this story know that who, who that secret and mystery, mysterious individual is, and it is God. God is behind our increase. God is behind our growth. God is behind our produce. And without his sovereign hand at work, nothing carries the ability to thrive. The rich man's wealth belongs to another. It's not his to own. It's his to steward. Unfortunately, this man doesn't get that message because this story is filled to the brim with this man's self-exaltation and self-glorification. Did you read it? Verse 17, he says, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build large ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The rich man's witness is filled with eyes and eyes. He consults only with himself concerning the goods God has produced. He makes plans only for himself with the goods God has produced. And he hoards goods God has produced only for his own personal enjoyment and pleasure and fulfillment. His consumption has not only blinded him to who really owns these goods, but it has also blinded him to who really needs these goods. Here's a question. Do you see any wheeze in this man's story? Any us's? Any they's? Any them's in this text? No, you don't. Which brings up another important point in this story. The rich man's craving for wealth diminishes his concern for others. In the same way that it is impossible to serve God and money, it is also impossible to love people well while loving money deeply. Do you understand? Love of money dampens the affection of the heart for others. This man has no room to sacrifice for others because he is consumed with his own gain. He's consumed with his own pleasure. He's consumed with his own entertainment. He's consumed with his own ambition. And so instead of laying down his life for others and serving others, he kicks his feet up and says, my old and my new barns are filled to the brim, so I suppose there is nothing left for me to do. His craving has left him increasingly isolated. Did you notice that? He has all of these things, and yet there is no people in his life to enjoy them with. One scholar rightly highlights that this is a very unusual position for this man to be in, in this community that he is in, in this story. Because this community that he is in, in this age, in this time that he is in, is a deeply communal one. Gathering and community is a bedrock of this culture. It is interwoven in how they live. And yet, here is a man with no one to speak to but himself, no one to share life with but himself. And spending his life chasing Zoe life through stuff. He now has a barn filled with stuff, but void of any real true life. How many of you have found yourself in a place or in that place where pursuit for more of stuff for yourself leaves you with seemingly less room for others. And not just less room to share with others, but just simply less room for others. Less room for community with others. 
You don't have any time to build any community and make any relationships with children and make any relationships with family members and make any relationships with church family and make any relationships outside of your, outside of your pursuit. Why? Because you are narrowly focused on accumulating more. Do you see what it's doing to you? Do you see how it isolates you? Not only does it cut off the vow of sharing, but it literally isolates you from the people that you say that you love. Trying to find Zoe in things will eventually leave you with less room to even enjoy others and for them to enjoy you. But the greatest tragedy is yet to be unpacked. We find it in verse 20. Look there. God said to them, or to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This rich man's wealth, compounding wealth, accumulating wealth, stacking wealth on top of wealth in barns and filling them up. And yet, this rich man's wealth does not shield him from foolishness in God's eyes. Let me be sure to say this. This man is foolish, but that does not mean that this man is not without knowledge. In fact, I would be surprised if he didn't have a pretty strong intellect. Maybe it was his intellect that gave him the ingenuity to create wealth. Maybe it was his intellect that he used corruptly to cheat people out of their wealth for so long that he built wealth off of their backs. We don't know how he accumulated the wealth, but we know that more than likely he has an intellect to do it. It's highly unlikely that this is a man without knowledge, just absolute. Our country is filled with billionaires who are some of the best and the brightest people in the world. And their insight into how money works is unparalleled and their understanding of how to create wealth is unrivaled. And yet, some of those same people, not all of them obviously, because it is not a sin to be wealthy, but some of those same people, one day God will appear to them and he will have the same unfortunate words. Fool, this night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So why is this rich man a fool? Well, number one, this rich man is a fool because he doesn't know who owns his goods. None of these goods are ultimately his. He treats them like they're his. Which is why at his death, he's saying to himself, man, I got so much stuff. Kick your feet up. Man, we're going to enjoy all of this stuff and we're just going to consume it slowly. And God says, nah, it's over. It's over. And whose goods will they be now? The answer to the question, nobody knows but God. He doesn't own it. God does. Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes that many will spend their entire lives storing up wealth and accumulating wealth only to have another come behind them and literally squander it all. Nobody knows. This is not ours. 
Now, that is not an encouragement to be loose with our savings and to leave nothing behind for our children. Proverbs 12 and 22 tells us that, that, that or rather, uh, 12, uh, Proverbs chapter 12, I believe, or maybe, maybe somewhere else, I'm sorry, but Proverbs, in the Proverbs, it tells us, I, I can't remember, but in the Proverbs, it tells us that it is a good thing to lay up an inheritance for our children and our children's children. A wise man leaves behind an inheritance for our children and our children's children. And so it is a good thing, amen? So this is not an encouragement to be reckless and loose with our money, but it is an encouragement to recognize whose money it is. And to remember that we are stewards of that money, not owners of it. And we should use it as he deems appropriate. And not just simply for our own self-consumption. But that's not the only reason why the man is considered a fool. He's also considered a fool because he has sacrificed real relationships for false ownership. He's told himself that he owns this money. Now he is sitting by himself with this money, thinking that he will enjoy this money only to find out, no, it's over. It's over. Talking to himself. Soul, take pleasure in what you've accumulated. Nah, it's over. And so all the real relationships he's forsaken for the phony ownership of this stored wealth. He kicked up his feet because he believed that he had finally arrived and that he had finally accumulated enough to have the Zoe kind of life. But what he has accumulated cannot produce the eternal. What he has accumulated cannot produce the relational. What he has accumulated cannot produce joy-filled, contentment-filled, peace-filled life. He's also a fool because he didn't understand that life doesn't truly begin until it ends. He spent this entire life accumulating wealth. He's compounded it, he's built more barns to store it, and now at the end of his current life, the permanent life begins, and he's literally made no provision for it. Because he dedicated everything the entire life before to nothing but himself. He was rich only towards himself. He will spend an eternity by himself, therefore, separated from the God who owns it all. Do you see that? Do you understand how easy it is for us to, to get what, uh, locked, locked in and, and caught up in this rat race to just accumulate more and more and more because we're telling ourselves and we tell our kids and we tell our family members that this is where life is truly found. And in so doing, we isolate ourselves from everyone, including God. And when God comes on judgment day, because we have made no provision to be with him through Christ, then we realize that separation in its fullest manifestation in hell. And that's what happens to this man. John 10 and 10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What kind of life? Zoe life. How do we get this life that we are chasing through things? We get it through Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can provide this life, this divine life, this eternal life, this relational life, this joy-filled, peace-filled, contentment-filled life. Folks, we worry about money. We crave money. We envy those who have money and have things. We hoard our money because we don't understand the truth about that money. And it is this, that it cannot last, we cannot take it with us, and it cannot produce the life that Christ gives. It does not produce peace. Do the math. How much money are you making now versus how much money you were making 20 years from now? Or 20 years ago, rather. And what are you doing? Worried about making more money. Thinking about more money. Telling yourself, when we get this amount of money, then we'll be satisfied. That's not what brings satisfaction. It can't bring satisfaction. Don't you see that? It's only Christ that can do this. I come that you may have life and life more abundantly. It does not say money came so that you may have life and more abundantly. It says I came, Christ came. I came down. I took on flesh. I lived a perfect life. I went up to the cross on your behalf. I hung on that tree on your behalf. I was buried for three days. I resurrected from the grave on your behalf. I ascended into heaven on your behalf. I intercede on your behalf, and I have prepared a place for you in order order that you may have abundant life. Money can't do that. It cannot do that and it will not do that. Don't let the world lie to you. Only God does that. And so let us pursue God. Let us make good use of our time and our talent, and, our tr and when God gives us abundant treasure, let us use that treasure in, well, in, in healthy ways. Let us, enjoy our, let us enjoy the treasure that he's given us. Let's take wonderful vacations. Let's go and do things that you've never done before. But let's also be rich in good works. Let's share that treasure. Let's not hoard that treasure. Yes, let's save for your children so that they have an inheritance to, to inherit. But never tell yourself that that will bring you satisfaction and never let your kids believe the myth. Only Christ does. So if you don't have a dollar to your name today, family, you still have life if you have Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Cling to him. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And we give you all the thanks and praise and all the glory and honor.